Morning, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Last week, we kind of covered Matthew chapter 23 uh, from a bird's eye perspective. And this morning, we're gonna go back and land on a couple of themes that I, uh, specifically, that I didn't really take time to uh, unpack. About uh, a number of years ago, actually about 20 some years ago, I was playing hockey and I developed a temporary condition called pneuma mediastinum, which is either Greek or Latin for an airlock around your heart. And apparently, this is what I've been told, apparently around our hearts there's a sac uh, which fluid, uh, filled, filled with fluid and that allows our hearts to expand and contract, you know, to do whatever it does when it's pumping lots of blood and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I was playing hockey, and I don't know exactly how all it happened, but somehow I punctured that sack, and I don't know if I also punctured a lung, but as I was playing hockey, I began pumping air into that sack around my heart, and it began to put pressure on my heart, and I began to feel pain. And um, I actually, I've never had a heart attack, and I, you know, I don't really look, hope to, but uh, I had never had one, and so I actually began to believe that I was having a heart attack because it was putting pressure on my heart as I was, ex as I was uh, you know, exercising and pumping blood and all that kind of stuff. And so I, and, and the, I started hyperventilating because I was panicking, and so I go back to the bench, and um, I actually thought I was di dying. And for whatever reason, uh, I didn't want to die in front of my friends or the rest of the team. So I went around to behind the bench, and I, I was panicking, and I actually passed out. Now, I don't know if I passed out because of the pain or I passed out because I was hyperventilating. It doesn't really matter. But I woke up in an ambulance going to emergency. And as soon as I woke up, it's a little bit foggy to me because I was kind of half conscious. So if I don't have all the details right, this is as best as I can remember it. I wake up in the ambulance, and as soon as I wake up, the pain was there again. Remember, I'm thinking I'm dying. So I start hyperventilating, panicking, which I guess put more pressure on the heart again, more pain. And so I pass out again while this medic was yelling at me, screaming to me, breathe. And um, I don't know if it happened two or three times, uh, honestly, but it sounds better if I say three. So let's say three. So this happened three times. And finally, when I come back to, she's obviously had a bad hair day because he was very upset with me, yelling at me, breathe. Somehow I squeaked out, I don't know how, or I just said how. And it dawned on this medic that this man doesn't know how to breathe when he's in pain. And so she began to explain to me or teach me how to breathe when I'm in pain and things could settle down and we could figure out what was wrong. Just so you know, I've shared this story before and I don't think at Village here, but people often wondered, are you okay? Yeah, it's six months later it all repaired and, and I'm relatively okay or as okay as I've ever been. Last week, we experienced, there, there's a point to, the mess, to that story, just so you know. Last week, we experienced a rather strong rebuke and an angry assault by Jesus on the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. Basically, Jesus' message through the, the overall chapter 23 of Matthew is, you bunch of hypocrites, you are a bunch of play actors. And that is a term that the Jews despised. They hated the theater. You're a bunch of posers. You're fakes. Jesus is saying the scriptures that you hold up uh, as, as sacred, you actually manipulate them to your own gain. You're nothing but a bunch of play actors, posers, fakes. You're going straight to hell. You don't know it. And all of the people who are stupid enough to follow you are also going straight to hell. That's basically his message last week. 
problem is, it was, it was a message on hypocrisy, and the reason why Jesus is so strong and angry about hypocrisy is because he loves us so much. Because hypocrisy comes with a price, and the price for the Pharisees was incredibly high. They thought they were going to heaven, and Jesus knew they actually weren't. There's a problem with hypocrisy, and as I think about this, I've thought about hypocrisy for two weeks now. There's a measure of hypocrisy in all of us. And I want to just address, I want to address both groups of people that are here at Village, the skeptics and the Christians. Skeptics is just a term we have. These are people, we're so glad you're here. In fact, Village Church is for you. It's people that have been hanging out with us and are interested in God and checking it out, but they haven't really made that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of your primary, if you're a skeptic, one of your, your favorite stated reasons for not inviting Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life is our hypocrisy. And, and I get that, but let me just gently call you out on that. There's a measure of hypocrisy in that too because it's kind of irrelevant. Because if Jesus is actually who he says he is and what he says is true, that the only way that you'll ever see eternal life after you die is to invite him to be Savior and Lord of your life, whether or not I'm a play actor doesn't make any difference. You still need a Savior. The, the, the real, from my experience and my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, but I think I'm pretty accurate, my understanding, the real reason why most skeptics, just like all people, don't want to, or at least who've been checking out Christianity, the real reason why skeptics don't want to invite Jesus to be Savior and Lord is because you want to be Lord of your life. It's the same reason why I had such a struggle becoming a Christian. I wanted to be God. I didn't want to surrender control of my life to anybody, including God. I get it. We want to be God. The problem is we're not. And back to our hypocrisy, if you're a skeptic, you're right. We're hypocrites. We're flawed. We fail. We blow it. Some of us don't mean to. Some of us, maybe we do mean to. I'm not sure. We've got a sin nature, whether we're Christians or not. And, and, and we can pretend we don't all we want, but, but left on our own, I'll choose wrong. I'll choose selfish. I, I, I am selfish. <laughs> left on my own, I will choose self-preservation. If it's me or you that's going to hurt, it's going to be you. That's my sin nature. So I am bent this way, so there is a measure of hypocrisy in me, and I'm fighting that my whole life, so I, so I get all that. And we need a Savior as much as you. Bono, the, the rock star, was once asked by Bill Hybels, pastor of a very large church, do you believe in grace? And he says, yes, because I'm counting on it. We need a Savior as much as you, but so do you. You need a Savior too. So don't let our hypocrisy stand in the way of you becoming a Christian. And if you've never met a true Christian, what's stopping you from being the first? Back to the rest of us, the, my goal this morning is not to, to, to tell us how bad we are, to tell us how, how much hypocrites we are. My goal this morning is actually to teach you how to breathe when you're in pain. My goal this morning is actually teach you how to not be a hypocrite or at least minimize the hypocrisy in your life because there is hypocrisy in our life. I'm gonna try and give you the yes but how. So I invite you to turn with me, if you're not there already, Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to read the whole passage, just going to read the first eight verses for now and then land on a few areas. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're the official interpreters of Scripture. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They're hypocrites. They make their phylacteries broad, little boxes they put on their foreheads with Scriptures in them. And their fringes, their prayer fringes long. They love the place of honor at at feasts in the best seats on the airplane or in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be the same. If I was gonna title my message this morning, it would be, but you I've called to be different. And what Jesus says here is he gives the things not to do. Don't seek the perks. Don't seek the positions. Don't seek the, all the prestige. Don't seek popularity. Rather, what I want you to do is become a servant of all. And Jesus is highlighting a very important truth here. You don't not become a hypocrite by trying not to become a hypocrite. You actually have to act in the opposite way. So Jesus is saying, everyone around you, they want, the deg- they, they want their degrees posted on their wall. They want to be called this. They want all the best places. But you, what I want you to do is become a servant. Humble yourself and let God exalt you. And that's what we need to do. So the way we need to avoid or minimize hypocrisy is walk in the opposite direction. Because as soon as you got up in the morning... The world is handing you a set of values that is antithetical to the way that Jesus wants us to live. But you I've called to be different. I want you to walk in a different way. It starts off with practicing what we preach. Remember what Jesus says? That the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. They've got authority, so do what they say, but don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. But you I've called to be different. I'd like you to practice what you preach. Matthew chapter seven, verse three, we've covered all this, and I said last week, if I didn't say it, I meant to say it, um, that um, there's nothing new in chapter 23. It's kind of like a summary of everything Jesus was trying to teach to the religious. And he said in Matthew chapter seven, verse three, we've covered this already, he said, um, but you, why do you look at the speck and try to help the, your brother with a speck in their eye when there's a log in your own eye? And what a lot of Christians do with that is say, I can't speak into anyone else's life because there's still hypocrisy in my own life. That's not what Jesus is saying. The next verse he says, So what I want you to do is take the log out of your eye so that you can help the brother with the speck in his eye. You and I need people in our lives to help us get the specks out because the specks hurt. The specks are a problem. So so this message is more a practical, how do we get some of those logs out of our own eyes? So the first one is to practice what we preach and don't think you're off the hook because you're not a preacher. You began to preach the moment you took on the name of Jesus Christ. The moment you took on the name of Jesus Christ, you became a preacher, and your life and my life is a megaphone to the world of what Jesus Christ is like. The only question is, how accurate is our message? One of the questions is, if people only had me to know what God was like, what kind of impression of God would they come away with? You know, at age 17, I played fastball on a commercial team, which was just a way of calling a beer league, you know, something important, a commercial league. And we played, and uh, uh, we, we were, our name was the Dinos, and we were sponsored by a company called the AW Dynamometers, and a dynamometer is just a large machine that tests cars under simulated real-life load conditions. So it's very expensive, and, and they paid for our, you know, whatever, our travel and all that kind of stuff, our uniforms, and we were doing quite well, so the coach invited the president of the company to come watch us play, and I don't know if we won the game or not. We won quite a few games, but I do know that after that game we lost our sponsorship we lost our uniforms and we lost our name 
because the way we handled ourselves on the field, our language, our mannerisms, our attitude did not reflect the value that that president wanted his company associated with. We were, whether we wanted to or not, because we bore the name Dinos, Dynamometers, we were a message of that company. It's the same with Christianity. Every one of us has a message. One of the reasons why Jesus is so down on hypocrisy is because of the messages it communicates to other people. We could spend a lot of time exposing this and we could all feel guilty and go home and maybe change a couple of behaviors, but remember, this is a yes but how message trying to help us become less hypocrites. So I wanna give you two strategies to have a better message that we preach. The base, the first, we got the basics and we got the advanced strategy on how to minimize hypocrisy in our lives here. The, the, first, the, the, the basic strategy, it's not sexy, tastes bad, but it works. Let me give it to you. The basic strategy to minimize hypocrisy in our life or to practice what we preach is to first of all identify, confess, and seek accountability for the inconsistencies in my life in three areas. The three areas are my behaviors, and some of you already know. We don't have to spend a lot, I don't have to spend a lot of time talking about that. You know if you have behaviors in your life that are inconsistent with the message of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian. The second area is in our thought life. This includes our lusts, our fantasies, and fantasies aren't all about sex. Some of our fantasies are about greed. Fantasies of becoming wealthy. Fantasies of my my life would only be different if this, and it also includes our hearts, our thoughts, also includes our bitterness. Jesus said, you, you know, back in Matthew chapter seven, you, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say to you, anyone who's angry in their, in their heart with their brother says, you fool, is guilty of murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who lusts in his heart includes, including, think, if my wife or husband was only dead, <laughs> then I would do what? That would be a lust in the heart. It would also include our bitterness towards other people. So our behaviors our thought life, and then our attitudes, our pride. We're not gonna cover it, but one of the woes, the last woe that Jesus talks about is woe to the Pharisees, you who say, if we had lived in the time of the prophets, we would not have killed the prophets. And it's that, uh, that we think we're better than other people. You know when we talk about hypocrisy, the temptation right now is to think about other people who are more hypocritical than you. It's, it's our pride in our heart if we, and we actually think we're better than a lot of people. That's an area that's hypocrisy, hypocrisy in our hearts. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this to identify them. All we've got to do is close our eyes and pay attention to the thoughts and memories that come to your mind as I ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to you the inconsistency of your heart. So if you've got the courage, I just invite you to do that right now. Just close your eyes. Holy Spirit of God, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, it's okay, the Holy Spirit will talk to you. Holy Spirit of God, where in my life am I behaving in a way that is inconsistent with you? What are the specific behaviors that are hypocritical in my life? Lord, reveal to me in my thought life, my fantasies, my bitterness, my anger, my resentments. What are the thoughts in my heart that are inconsistent with who you are. Things that you want me to clean up. Lord, in my attitudes, who do I think I'm better than? Who do I talk about, criticize, put down? 
So after we've identified those areas, that's a good prayer we can have anytime. The next part is to actually confess and seek accountability for the inconsistencies in our life. And here's my suggestions on that. And I get it, a lot of us won't do that. But if, if you're wanting to minimize hypocrisy, this, this is how we have to do it. This is a serious thing. Hypocrisy is a serious thing. It's not easy. So here's the suggestion. In community group, those of you in community group, this week, this, this would be a great idea. After you've done the study, after you've talked about some of this stuff, separate into guys and gals. Guys go downstairs, gals stay upstairs, or whatever you gotta do. Pick different rooms. Then drop down into little groups of three. And then simply share, these are the areas that God has revealed to me that there's inconsistencies in my life and how he wants me to live. And then this is what I sense God asking me to do about it. This is what I'm going to do about it. I might fail, but this is what I'm gonna try. Will you please ask me next week how I'm doing? With no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Remember, this is about trying to be less hypocritical. These are the kind of ways we do it. Now that's one option. If you've got a close relationship with your spouse and you're, and you're getting along relatively well, share it with them. You see, Satan does not want us to go public with what God's asking us to change. And, but the pro problem with Sunday morning, not much changes on Sunday morning. Yeah, we got songs and a sermon and we might get, a, you know, God might speak to us, but it's the application of the message that's the real message. Now, if you don't want to minimize hypocrisy, you don't have to do that, but if you want to, that's one of the surest ways to do it. Identify, and this is actually all in the basics. Identify, confess, and seek accountability. You might think, why do I have to confess to anyone else? The Bible says in James chapter, chapter five, it says, when you confess, that's when you're healed. That's not when you're forgiven. You might want to just confess to God. The problem is we've already lived a hypocritical life. We know what God knows what's in my life, but I'm gonna share it with other people because the reality is a lot of us care more about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. And we know we're not supposed to think that way, but we're flawed. So let that work for you. The advanced way to minimize hypocrisy in your life is actually to take time to prepare your own message versus the one that's handed to you. You know, that as a, as a pastor and preacher, I could probably buy, you can buy sermons and you can actually just steal them, just watch them online. And you can preach them, they're probably better than the messages that I preach. But the problem is they, they wouldn't be owned by me. I wouldn't have wrestled through it. And even if it'd be more polished, it's not mine. Well, the reality is we're handed a set of values all the time, other people's values. But if we have never wrestled with what our values, I'm talking about the advanced here, your message is the values that you hold deep in your heart. What I'm talking about in terms of values, I'm defining values, is that set of priorities, uh, or, or sorry, that set of inner beliefs that set my priorities, that govern my behaviors, that determine my boundaries and give meaning to my sacrifices. It's an internal set of beliefs. Not my behaviors, but my internal set of beliefs. In one of the woes, it says, clean out the inside of the dish. It's our internal set of beliefs are what's inside of the dish. Our behaviors are what's on the outside of our dish. And we will not defeat hypocrisy by behaviors. We've got to do it at a heart level. So I'm talking about setting your values. Do you know what your values are, your true values are? One of the problems with, with that whole concept, my values, is most of us have two sets of values or priorities. We've got the values that we preach, the ones that we say are, are, are most important to us, and sometimes we even think that those are actually the most important things in our lives. That's the message we preach. But then there's, there's the values that our behaviors and our actions actually reveal are really important to us. That's what we practice. Most of us have two sets of values, and one exercise that I have found very helpful for me to reveal those two sets is to envision myself at my own funeral in three years. You can try that this week. 
Envision yourself at your own funeral and pr pretend that there's four speakers that are gonna speak and talk about your life and what was valuable to you, what made up your life, what was important to you. One from your f immediate family, one from your set of friends or acquaintances, one from your work or your school, and one from your community or your church. What would they say about you? What would they say by the way they saw you live what was important to you? And what's more haunting for me is what they might think but not say publicly. What are the disappointments they might have? What are the things they saw in my life that they didn't want reproduced in their own? You know, I was thought about this last night and I was preparing again. I actually rewrote my sermon last night because I didn't like the first one. And I was thinking about this in my life and I, and I thought, you know, what I fear people might say about me is that I was too busy. Yeah, and, and I can attack that with my, with my behaviors, but what is, if it's true that I'm too busy or they might say that there's not enough joy in my life, that stress got me, you know, I was too serious. What does that say about my values? And I haven't worked this all out. I got some work to do here. But it says it's possible that what I still value, I still value what other people think of me more than I actually thought I did. It's possible that I, that, that I don't have as much faith in God as I actually thought I did. And here's the problem. I actually preach against those things. I preach against hypocrisy. I preach against worrying about what people think of you. I preach against making your decisions on fear. And, and yet, it's possible that there's still a measure of that that I haven't thought about. And all I did is think for 10 minutes about what people might say about me. What people would say about you, what you fear people say, that kind of reflects, or what they would say about you, or think about you, kind of reflects your true values. Now ask yourself, after you've done that, and that's gonna be painful, or might, might, hopefully not, then ask yourself and write down, what would I like them to say about me? What do I hope people say about me? What do I hope people remember me for? That's your desired set of values. That's what you want to live. That's what you preach. That's the message you preach, but don't practice. Now, why is that so important? It's important because the definition of hypocrisy is play acting. The definition of hypocrisy is pretending to be someone you're not. The antidote to hypocrisy is authentic living. And authentic living demands that I bring my said values, my, my, my desired values, and my true values together. And I become the same man that I'm actually living according to what I say is important. But Satan doesn't want us to think. Satan does not want you to take the time to think about what's truly important to you. He wants you to live according to the world's set of values. And I'll tell you what some of the world's values are. They're self-preservation. They are security. They are a sense of fulfillment and meaning in life. They are advancement. They are comfort. Those are the values that were held and those leak into our lives and that's what is, that is fighting against what, the kind of men and women we truly want to be. So after you've done all that, remember I'm trying to just give you, this is, this is what I actually do. I don't do it all, well all the time but I actually do this. Every three months I go back through my values and I try to think through. These are my top five values. So this is the next part of the exercise. Take the time to jot down your top five values or priorities in life. Now, you're going to want to have more. It's really hard to nail it down to five. If you're a Christian, you should probably put God number one or Jesus number one. The problem is Jesus is probably not number one in your actual values. Probably comfort, probably personal esteem, what people think of you, and I'm not trying to condemn you. It's the same battle that I face. 
But taking the time, God's number one. If you're married and have children, then you should put your spouse in number two. Now she's here, here, is probably not. Probably your work, maybe your, maybe your uh, I don't know, comfort, maybe pleasure, maybe sex, maybe money, maybe security, maybe your RSP, maybe your motorcycle, maybe golf. You can tell by the way you live your life. Would she say she's a priority? Would he say she, he's a priority? But you should probably, remember, we're trying to put desired priorities, put your wife or your husband next. If you've got children, lump them all together, put them number three. Number four and five, put, ever, put whatever you think is important to you. Don't put more than five because you can't handle more than five for the next three months. Then go back, that's gonna take some time, it's gonna be hard. Then go back under each one and put, so if God is a priority, then put two positive um, uh, action points that prove to you that God's a priority. Very specific. What I mean by that now, I'm just gonna give you some examples that I've used in my life at different times that only put two uh, positive reinforcement statements. So if Jesus and God is important to me, then I, you might put something like, I will carve out 15 minutes a day, three times a week, to, to read God's word, reflect on what I'm reading, and record what I think he's saying to me. Do you wanna put it two times a week? You wanna put it eight times a week? Well, you can't put it eight times a week. Seven times a week, put whatever. But if God's important, then this is an action that I'm gonna do that actually backs that up. Here's another one that I do that's currently in, in my life. I will, because I'm not a singer, uh, worship by music doesn't come natural to me, that's not my main way of connecting with God, so one of my action statements there is, I will enter into worship within 20 seconds of every song we sing at Village. Because what happens to me is we're singing, I'm thinking about what the song says, I think about, is this theologically accurate? <laughs> Is this a good song? Do I like this song? I wonder if they're just playing the song because they like the way it feels or that's where my mind goes. But I, I want to, because God's important, I, I, have to, I have to flick a switch and I have to actually interact with the Holy Spirit during that song because God's a value to me. Because otherwise, I'm wasting the time, I'm proving by my actions that God's not a value to me. I'm, I, I'm a put, I will intentionally set aside a percentage of my income not because I have to, because God's a value to me for kingdom purposes. And I will invest, we will invest where God leads us to. I will intentionally set aside X number of hours a week to serve in an area where there's needs. And if it happens to meet my spiritual gifts and my passions, area bonus. But I will serve in the areas that, that there's a need and God gives me opportunity, yeah, even if it's not my favorite area. And here's another one I've been thinking about. I will intentionally build, uh, spend time building my relationship with put someone's name in there who does not yet currently know Christ with the hopes that my life is gonna be attractive to him or her, you know, for me to be him, that he would actually ask what my life's about. You know what hit me this morning? This sounds harsh, but for a Christ follower to not have any relationships with people who do not know Jesus Christ with the hope and intent of one day sharing your God's story with them is hypocritical. And the longer we are a church, the longer it will be possible for us to come every week and hang out with Christians and not have one friend who does not know Jesus Christ that we intentionally spend time with. That is important to Jesus. That's all part of my worship. Another area 
you know, in terms of my, my, my wife, my, my wife is, val- she's a value, my relationship my, with my wife is a value to me. Why do I have to put that down? It should be obvious. Is, you know, is that offensive for her? If she's, if she's listening to this message, why would I have to put that down? Because life is busy and there's a lot of demands on my time and it's very, very easy for me to take my wife for granted and have her drop to number five or six or seven or eight. Even though I say she's top priority, I made vows to my wife in front of God and other witnesses. I can't remember any of my first vows, but I also made vows to my wife on her 25th anniversary before God and my children. I made real vows. And this is something I didn't park on last week. I actually asked it from my message, and I was thinking about it here, but I, I wanna just park on this for a minute. Marriage is an area that we've gotta do better as a church because the message that we are communicating in our marriage is a terrible, mar- ter- terrible message. Right now, in the church, in Canada, the divorce rate in the church is about 22%. It's not one in two. It's not 50% like people are saying. That's a distorted statistics. But 22% is still too high. And I'm not saying this with any condemnation. I know that the divorce is a concession. God even put it in Scripture when then there's hurts and there's trust broken and sexual misconduct or whatever it is. There's, there's, there's something that has to happen, I guess. And, and the reason why God's against it is because it's so painful. If you've been through a divorce, I hope you feel loved here. There's no condemnation. You already know how painful it is. That's one of the reasons why God's against it. But for those of you who are still married, You made vows, and I want to share with you, for me, I'm just going to share with you the most profound passage of Scripture that I ever found um, on keeping my vows. It's actually in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says, Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you vow to God, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better for you that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin, and don't say to the temple messenger your vow was a mistake. And there are people, maybe you, who say to the temple messenger, the pastor, the elders of the church, I married the wrong person. No, you didn't. You married the person you wanted to marry. Don't say to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Fulfill your vows. Uh, it's an old illustration, but about a guy went to a counselor and says, uh, maybe as a pastor, and said, anyway, I'm not getting along with my wife. I can't stand her. I want to hurt her. It must have been a counselor, not a pastor, because the pastor wouldn't have given this advice. But went to a counselor and said, I really want to hurt her. He says, I want to divorce her. He says, well, don't divorce her now when she thinks you can't stand her. Treat her really well for six months. Do all kinds of things for her. You know, take her out, romance her, all that kind of stuff. Then divorce her if you really want to hurt her. So he did all that for six months, comes back and says, oh, are you going to divorce? He says, no, are you crazy? I love that woman. You, you see, 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 one of the things is when you make a vow, that's it for life. And I know there's a lot of divorce. I'll just, you want to know how I stay married? Two ways. One is I made my vow public. I've told my kids, and I'm telling you, and I've told everybody that's taken Freedom Session, it's on the videos, you'll never hear me leaving my wife. People say, how can you say that? Because all the people do. I said, I know they do, but I'm just saying I'm not going to. My kids know that. My wife knows that. It's a vow I made. I won't do it. So I'm stuck in my marriage. So I might as well make it good. And don't get, don't get the impression Bonnie's hard to be married to. I'm harder to be married to than she is. But there have been times in my life where if I was not a Christian, yeah, I probably would have divorced. I probably, we probably would have gone our separate ways. The pain, we've hurt each other too much, and it just seemed like that was easier. But I made a vow before God, therefore I'm getting back in the game. 
And as we resolve the conflict, all the feelings of love come back. The other way I do it, and it's not theologically you know, proven or anything like that, but this is what I've done. I've made my commitment to my marriage synonymous with my commitment to Christ. And it's just something I've done in my head. I can't picture me ever walking away from Christ, therefore I'm not gonna walk away from my marriage. And I am flawed, and there's, all kind, there's conflict in our marriage at times, but we love each other, and that has held us together for a number of years. I value my, my adult children. I value, why do I, val I value a good reputation? Why do I value a good reputation? Because I want to have an influence in my life. I value a clear conscience. I, I thought about, that's one of my motivations not to sin. Yet we should just, sometimes we just white knuckle it. We shouldn't sin. I don't want to feel guilt. Why do you not sin? Is it because, you know, you'll feel bad after? Or because you get caught? Because some of us, if you don't sin, let's, let's take the, the typical one we always talk about, pornography. 40 to 60% of our men at Village Church probably struggle with pornography. 25 to 40% of our women struggle with a form of lust or fantasy. So, so what is the motivation to not do that? For some men, the motivation to not look at pornography is so they don't get caught. It's comfort. The value is comfort. But what about if you'd make the, the value that, that I, I, I'm not going to do that because I value a clear conscience before God. I like the, the sense of waking up knowing the Holy Spirit and I can talk. I hate waking up with a feeling of I'm a hypocrite that i got to confess the first thing. See, valuing a clear conscience. Remember, hypocrisy is something that we've got to deal with at a heart level. I value self-respect. And actually for me, Again, I'm not harping on the whole sexuality thing, but one of my primary reasons why I find pornography distasteful is because I value self-respect and I want to be one that protects my daughter, protects my wife's virtue, and I want to protect my granddaughter, and I want to protect the other vulnerable women in society. I want to be protector of women, not an exploiter of women. That's something that I've changed in my head. It makes pornography unattractive. It's a value thing. The Bible talks, in Proverbs says, a prostitute, or that was the live form of pornography in those days, it reduces you to a loaf of bread. The woman doesn't even care about you. I don't want to be reduced to a loaf of bread. I want to have more self-respect. It's a value. It's not about me being great. And the other thing is, I realized that later on, my, my wife and I realized in our ministry that, that a, a lot of the pornography, especially the hardcore, it's actually sex slavery. That's what it is. So that makes the behavior unattractive. It's because what I value in my heart. And then I value a scene in heaven that I've rehearsed many times in my life. I value, and this, this, is, this is a value that makes meaning out of some of the sacrifices that, that I and other Christians that serve a lot make, and hopefully you. I value a scene in heaven 10 minutes after I die. Standing in the throne room and Jesus Christ coming to me, knowing all my flaws and all that kind of stuff, saying thank you. Thank you for seeing hope where other people saw hopelessness. Thank you for loving people who other people didn't think were lovable. Thank you for sticking in there. I'm proud of you. Sometimes I live for that. Why this is so important is because it's so practical. Establishing my values, writing them out, actually protects me from uh, embracing the values of our culture. It also helps me make difficult decisions because values are hierarchical. There's some things I value more than others. Also, when I take time to make specific goals that reflect my values and work towards them, I don't feel like a hypocrite because I'm not. Yeah, I'm flawed. 
I'm flawed, I'm not play acting anymore. And Village Church, we're trying to create a community where we can be 100% honest, we can be authentic, we can be flawed, but we don't want a cheap grace. We don't want I'm great, you're great, we're all great. We want to actually look at our hypocrisy, we want to look at the flaws, we want to look where Satan's got strongholds and footholds in our lives, and we want to share them with other people but receive mercy rather than condemnation, but also accountability and love and say, okay, let's deal with that so we can become the kind of men and women that we really want to be. And so that when we stand up and worship, we can worship with a true heart and preach and practice the same message. We wanna close this service with a practice that we preach and we practice that's shared with Christians around the world. It's called communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And it's something that Jesus actually asked us to do to re- for a number of reasons. We, we talk about grace. We talk about there's no condemnation, whether you're a Christian or not. Every single sin, every single flaw, every time we've been hypocritical, every mistake we've made, it's already been paid for. But it was the blood of Jesus Christ that came with a cost. And that's why in a few minutes we're going to pass around what represents the bread and the wine, the bread and uh, the, the bread, the body of Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his body for our flaws. It's torn apart. And his blood, he actually died, bled out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's what it means. The Bible in 1 Corinthians tells us to examine ourselves before we partake. Jesus wants us to remember this regularly, to appreciate and say thank you to Jesus. But he also wants us to examine our hearts. And that's what we've been doing this morning. Examining our hearts where we don't measure up. It's okay because Jesus paid for it. But Lord, this is what you've said to me this morning. This is what I'm going to do. And so who communion is for, it's for those of you who are Christians. You don't have to be a member of Village Church, but we do want you to take a minute. You've already been doing that this morning. Lord, what in my life is inconsistent? What are you wanting me to deal with? And let them know what you're gonna do. When I grew up, sometimes people would just let the, the communion plate pass because it says if you're not right with the Lord, you shouldn't take communion. But I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to make yourself right with the Lord and take communion. It's common union with Jesus Christ and each other. And so that's the application, or at least the, 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 the short application of the message. The rest of the application of the message is what you do with it this week. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you there's so much. There is no condemnation for us. Thank you that you had the courage and the love to call out our hypocrisy because you know how dirty it feels to us. Lord, we don't wanna be that. And I thank you for a community called the church, called your presence, that we can come before you and just acknowledge we've made a couple mistakes, Lord, we've made lots of mistakes. But this is what you've said to me this morning. So as I take communion today, as we take communion today, we're acknowledging that you've paid the price for the inconsistency. But we wanna come in union with you and walk with you to be more like you so that our message that we preach and the message we practice glorifies you in heaven and is the same message. In Jesus' precious name.